Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben Gwillem. He's a private land forest inventory analyst with the Ontario Woodlot Association. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's, it's truly an honor and privilege to uh, be on your podcast. Yeah, for sure. Love, love the love that you're able to make some time. So I'm going to ask you a question about vertical datums and how you actually go about do it. So, so we're we're chuckling right now before the podcast. Ben was like, "Don't ask me anything like super technical," and I said, "I promise I won't." And then I just asked him one, but so this is more <laughs> just to to lighten the mood. So Ben, where are we reaching you today? So I'm at my home here in Toronto, Ontario. Um, this is where I work out of mostly when I'm, I'm doing my data processing, but uh, I spend a lot of my time out in the field all across the province. So normally you could find me uh, anywhere out in the field, but um, right now today I am at home. Yeah. So when I look at the Ontario Woodlot Association map, but like, like this is Ontario and for the listeners that don't know Ontario, Ontario is massive uh, as a province. So like you must have a lot of driving or is it the Ontario Woodlot uh, association private corporate jet or corporate helicopter that whisks you around or, or 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 how much driving do you have to do it's quite a bit of driving our chapters are mostly located in the south of the province so um if you know where Algonquin park is it's generally a little bit north of that and everything south so um the driving they, they have a very generous mileage um uh, compensation policy but uh, it's it's just with my own car that i'm getting around yeah, absolutely. So Algonquin uh, Park there in South. So so not uh, not too bad. We we won't uh, judge you for being living in Toronto or using Toronto as a as a home base. So this is part two in a, a series with the Ontario Woodlot Association. I spoke with John Pino, executive director, on a previous podcast. Uh, John John largely said, "Hey, if you have technical questions, don't ask me. Ask Ben." And then so so we'll get into the weeds, but certainly we won't go pure tech. I'm excited about having this conversation with you because you are a guy boots on the ground um, doing hands-on work. And I think of our listeners and our our viewers for those on on YouTube, I think they're really going to benefit or be able to relate to maybe some of your experiences, maybe some of the challenges you're facing or or even where you're going and and how to actually go about doing that. So maybe to start things off, um, tell me about your journey. I, I believe you yeah, you know, you, you got a forestry background, but maybe kind of for our listeners and, and viewers, kind of give us how did you get into where you are now? Was this ordained or or predestined fate took over or or is this like, a, a, you know, kind of a little bit of organic growth, a bit of studies, but maybe give us some background about who you are and how you got into uh, this this world of forestry. Well, certainly, Kevin. Yeah, after. After dropping out of the computer science program, I felt I really needed a change, but I still wanted a university degree. And spending time around the Faculty of Forestry, I, I had no idea um, what forest management entailed, really. I just knew that I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be around nature. Um, I wanted to contribute somewhat to uh, the challenges that the world's facing with loss of biodiversity, um, you know, carbon sequestration, and all the other aspects that, that forest management provides. So... I ended up re-enrolling into University of Toronto in their undergraduate forestry program, which wasn't an actual faculty at the time. It was under the arts and science program. 
And I ended up um, really enjoying the program itself. And I graduated with a Bachelor of Science and went on to enroll in the Masters of Forest Conservation program as well, where I was able to apply a lot of what I was learning in my computer science background, um, integrating it, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today, into the, uh, the forest management background that I was learning. Yeah, amazing, amazing. It's kind of funny, a lot of the the digital foresters, as I call it, the ones that end up doing work that you're doing now, there's a weird thread that many of you, us, um, had a touch with computer science or engineering, and and it didn't seem to, to satisfy a calling. Maybe that's one way of putting it, and folks ended up coming to forestry or maybe environmental sciences. I personally went the environmental sciences route and, and not the forestry side. So it's neat to, to, to draw that, that correlation there. Um, was doing the master something that was like a, a logical progression or was there something more in the sense that when you studied undergrad, you found your, your calling, if that's the right thing, your interest was peaked, your passion fired up. Was that something that you just thought, you know, I want to learn more as a stepping stone and if so i know in canada at least there's only so many universities with with forestry faculties and there's almost a where did you go to school and then uh you know there's a bit of banter uh you stayed at uft and and so maybe tell us about that um in terms of that decision to go do the masters versus going straight right out to work in the forest industry certainly well i had a strong connection with the faculty there i had a supervisor in my undergraduate program who really encouraged me to take the mfc the masters of forest conservation and i also my one of my my long term goals is to gain my rpf and since that program is accredited it goes towards that uh, that goal i was able to acquire substantial grants and it just made sense for me to stay in the city. This is where my wife is. She also works at U of T. So the location itself was just more so out of convenience and, and connection, right? Then um, I could have gone on to, to a university further north and probably got a little more into the weeds with forest management. But I really enjoyed being at U of T. And the MFC program, having a focus more so on biodiversity, I think um, kind of spoke to, to my values as well. Yeah, for sure. So, so as we kind of look at the journey, right, you did your undergrad, you, you, you're writing, you know, as a young guy, your own batch scripts and all that, even before university. And, and that's what led you to maybe look at computer science first and then, and then decide that, you know, I'm dropping out. It's not the right time. It's not the right fit. And, and truthfully, that's okay. Um, you know, I think there's a stigma you're here dropping out and that's bad. You know, sometimes you just need to find your way. Right. And, and you want to make sure you, you get it right. And it certainly sounds like you, you've, you've, you've done that. Um, and so when we look at where you are now, I'm curious, like, did you know, John, you're, you're, I don't I don't know, technically, is he your boss or the executive director, but did you know John Pino beforehand, or was there one of those moments, magical moments where sparks collided and then this is where we are now, but maybe tell me about how, uh, how you came to be at the Ontario Woodlot Association. Certainly. Well, no, I, I didn't know John know personally before um, it was through an internship opportunity part of the mfc program uh, there's a strong internship component about four months you spend with another organization and you get to pick from a list of internship opportunities and one that really stuck out to me was was lidar data uh, to develop forced inventories on private land and i was aware of lidar data before i remember 
scrolling the internet, seeing a, a really cool picture, you know, of um, what it was a, a profile of a forest canopy, all colorized by, uh, you know, point return. And I, I looked into it more and I, I saw that the applications for LIDAR and, and autonomous vehicles and, and forest mapping. So when I saw that internship option pop up, I immediately applied to it. And um, I was, I was so gracious to be accepted. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been truly an honor working for the Ontario Woodlot Association. Afterwards, they, they liked my internship uh, product so much that they, they decided to hire me on full time. Yeah, nice, nice for sure. And and so, how long have you been with the the OWA uh, to date? So that was twenty twenty one. So it's been a little over, I guess, almost two years now that I've been with the OWA. Right. So you're you're going right in, like you know, good old COVID style, COVID era rolling in. Yeah. Well, you know, often yeah. with uh, COVID, I joke with forestry. It's like you know, you're out in the woods with one or two people like it's arguably uh you know great profession not being during uh covid self-isolation uh is well exactly. foresters being in the bush send me out to the bush or the fields um so you know you discovered lidar and 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 you're learning so maybe tell us about the work you do at the owa because again when i spoke with john john was talking more about the program his experiences um, in his life and how he got to be. But in terms of the OWA, um, is there a specific set of things you're responsible for, or is it more um, ad hoc project-based based on what the, the membership um, needs? But what, what's a day in the life uh, as a private land forest inventory analyst with the OWA? Certainly. So my purview is the private land inventory project, which I believe John described in the, the last episode there. He, um, well, basically, beyond that, I do also geospatial analysts, so uh, geospatial analysis for uh, very small projects that the OWA has taken on. But with my involvement in the private land uh, forest inventory project, I do, along with my colleague, Sinead Eggett, our field coordinator, I do all of the ground, the field work for all of the ground calibration plots. So I'm collecting the data and I also bring it back to my office and I do the processing of the data to um, develop the actual inventory maps. Right. So so for those maybe fresher uh, listeners who may not have uh, caught John's piece, maybe describe this this uh, OWA project of, of the inventory as a whole and, and what you're trying to do. So a forest inventory really hasn't been done on private land in Ontario since 1979. That was the last time that the full area of Ontario that was inventoried. Since then, the ministry has pulled back a lot of the funding and is focusing primarily on crown land, which is where a lot of the uh, operate uh, the industrial forestry happens in Ontario. Crown land is, is essentially public land. So private land was sort of left to be um, un unaccounted for for almost 40 years. And through John's visionary, um, you know, through John's vision and, and along with Al Stinson, they thought, why don't we apply what the MNRF is doing in the north and on the crown land using LIDAR data to produce accurate and up-to-date maps of forest structure? Why don't we apply that on private land and see how it works? So my internship was documenting an area, 
in the far east of the province, uh, the United Counties of Prescott and Russell, they had flown LIDAR data for uh, floodplain mapping. And this LIDAR data existed, but they basically only used the ground returns. We thought, what if we use the returns that they weren't using, the vegetation, and produce the same sort of inventories that the MNRF is doing? So um, that that is uh, essentially uh, the basis of the project. In the north, in the Crown land, the, the ministry does fly over private land as well, because it's sort of interspersed within the Crown land areas. And what we're doing there is we rely on the MNRF to do all the processing and we can clip out the private land afterwards and add it to our own database. So, so prior to doing this, like, like in your, your master's degree and your undergrad, like this is not something you knew how to do coming out of school. Is that correct? No, absolutely not. And I owe so much to the, the venerable Murray Woods who took me under his wing and taught me all that he knows about processing LIDAR data into forest inventories. And, you know, it's based a lot on, on the work you have done as well, Kevin, and your colleagues in, in that whole cohort. And it's, uh, yeah, it's building a lot on on the work that Murray, yourself, and, and um, uh, Dr. Pitt and and uh, Dr. Penner and everyone else has done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so maybe for because there's people out there that um, while we talk about lidar, some of us talk about it as if um, you know it's an everyday thing, and yet there's people out there who still haven't started their journey in adopting and using lidar in in their day to day business, whether it's commercial forestry or, or, or some, uh, uh, nonprofit organization. So maybe what was your initial reaction? Like when, when you started doing your internship and you got into this with the data, was it holy bleep run for the high Hills? What did I sign up for? Or was it okay? Holy double bleep definitely run for the high, but maybe, maybe share that initial response to like, looking at this like like was it just natural that because again with your technical background and and curiosity and the the, the computer sciences side of it that you felt well equipped but but what was that like the first couple of days of starting uh, that project it was overwhelming to say the least i am so grateful that i had a background in coding python because that translated well into the r programming language that is used predominantly to process this LIDAR data. So I understood the coding aspect of it. What I wasn't prepared for were the size of the data sets. I'd never worked with, with data at, at that scale, right? So these data sets were, were hundreds of gigabytes in size, creating tables with, with millions and millions and millions of rows and crunching those kind of numbers on my machine uh, it was a struggle. I had to upgrade quite a bit of my hardware in order to be able to do it. But, you know, I had such great, great guidance from Murray Woods. Um, there's a lot of documentation online that I was able to access. There's great work coming out of Laval University. Um, it was just, uh, it was helpful to have all of that. It required a lot of research on my part. But um, if I didn't have uh, these mentors, I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today. That's, that's for certain. It, it was, it was a lot, uh, uh, it was a lot of, um, head banging. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you need to uh, persevere to get through it. Uh, we joke about it, but sometimes that's what it is. I, I recall an old professor that told me, uh, when I ran into his room, 
frustrated and he's like you're you're what's wrong you're banging your head against the wall and i was like absolutely and he's like that's a good thing because if you weren't then it probably means somebody else has already done this and, and solved the problem and i was like exactly okay that's one way of putting it got me out of the room pretty quick but so for this initial project uh, uh for our listeners like how big was this project area and you mentioned lidar i assume it's airborne lidar you talk about large volume data what, what was the point density give me a bit more nuts and bolts uh, so our listeners can relate to maybe their projects that they've had to work with Certainly. So the LiDAR data we use is all publicly accessible. Um, it is mostly flown in leaf off conditions. So basically a lot of the LiDAR that's flown on crown land is flown in leaf on conditions. So you're getting a really good picture of the tree canopy because it's reflecting off of the leaves. Unfortunately, a lot of the municipalities and conservation agencies will only fly in leaf off because they're only interested in what the terrain looks like. And that was a bit of a challenge uh, when we're producing our own inventories on private land um, where these LIDAR acquisitions are flown. It's all flown with linear mode LIDAR. Uh, it's all flown around, what I see is between 6 to 20 points per square meter returns. And from that, like I said, the challenge was that it's leaf off LIDAR. So we're getting really good tree heights, but I find overall, especially in broadleaf species, we tend to underpredict their values because it's only bouncing off of the stems rather than the leaf area. For conifers, of course, that's not really a concern. Um, and we're predicting the attributes for conifers quite well. But uh, the, the main challenge and, and the difference has been the leaf off conditions that this LiDAR data was flown. And unfortunately, due to the costs associated with this, we can't fly our own LiDAR. The OWA is, is too small of an organization um, we certainly don't have the funding for something like that. It would be lovely if we could, but we have to work with what's available in the public and what's already being flown. For sure. So, so that that pro project you mentioned, uh, United Counties of Prescott, Russell, I think is what you said. That was the internship. So the data was in leaf off conditions. So obviously that internship turned into a job. So I'm going to assume that the project was successful. And even though the data was flown in leaf off conditions, you are achieve you're able to achieve your your goals and what you're trying to predict is that is that accurate and maybe if if that is accurate does it matter whether it's leaf on leaf off what what did what did you guys uh, find so what we found was overall the predictions were were respectable certainly when you are looking at the stand level right if we're looking at a pixel by pixel basis there's quite a bit of error when we average things out to a stand, which is typically how forests are managed at the stand level, we find that even in the leaf off conditions, our root mean squared error is about 12%, which is excellent. Um, root mean squared error just means the average error of the predicted values to the observed values. So being within 12% of the actual value is from what I understand is in line with what they are uh, getting up in the north on crown land, even in leaf on conditions. If you were to separate that into the broadleaf stands, I believe that root mean squared error goes up to close to 20%. But when we include conifer with that as well, um, you know, we're, we're sitting at a pretty comfortable percentage there. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned you're, you're the boots on the ground guy in your role, you're doing the field work. 
So again, assuming that project was successful, you get hired on with the Ontario Woodlot Association, your boots on the ground. You mentioned the OWA doesn't have the resources to fly that type of LIDAR. So uh, for the private land base, um, are you acquiring the data yourselves using drones and LIDAR or, or where is that data coming from? Or is it purely from the province um, and cookie cutting out the pieces there? So it's purely from the province. Uh, Ontario GeoHub has hosted all of the publicly available LIDAR data sets that have been flown to date. In a smaller area, we're sort of experimenting with the use of drone technology and um, digital uh, photogrammetry to produce point clouds. And that's something that's still very much in the testing phases for the OWA. And our goal is to be able to fly our drones over a smaller area acquire a point cloud just for their woodlot and be able to produce a usable inventory from that. And this would be in areas where either the LIDAR data is out of date. So we like to look for LIDAR data that's within five years of us doing our ground calibrations. No more than that, because at that point, the forest has grown too much beyond from when the LIDAR was acquired and we're doing our ground calibrations. So we, we would like to be able to just fly our own drones over small woodlots, and produce boutique inventories for for landowners that way for sure and and so you mentioned you go out of the field so i'm sure there's listeners who are saying ben i love what i'm hearing you know i'm in a similar situation i've got some lidar data that came from somewhere or whatever the story is and i gotta i know i gotta put plots down on the ground <laughs> i know you've been asked this a million times how many plots do i need and and how big are they what am i measuring uh, what would you tell the digital foresters tuning into this podcast? Well, the amount of plots you need certainly depends on both the size of the area that you'd like to inventory and the amount of variation in forest structures you have within that, that area. So to give some context for Prescott Russell, an area about 2000 kilometers squared, we ended up with close to 200 plots. And what these plots are capturing is the full variation in forest structure across that particular landscape. So the way that we process the LIDAR using machine learning, it only knows to predict something that it has seen before. So it's only gonna be as good as we're able to capture that full variation. So these plots, the plots that we're using right now, and this area that we've inventoried is the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Forest, which you know, certainly has more variation than the boreal, but not as much as the Carolinian forests further south in the province. We do 400 square meter plots. And within those plots, we measure the height and diameter of all trees, um, their quality, AGS, UGS, accepted, acceptable growing stock or unacceptable growing stock, and as well as their species. And that is able to translate into a raster, a map with about 20 by 20 meter grid cells. And each grid cell is predicting the values for basal areas, volumes, average heights, uh, average diameters, anything you would see in a standard um, industrial inventory on the crown, crown land areas, that's what we're producing for private land in the South. Very cool. If we were to move, sorry no no go ahead yeah if we move further south into these carolinian areas 
we're seeing a lot more variation in species and forest structure. And because of that, we're expanding our plot size now. So we expand it to about 625 meters squared. And that way we're able to capture more of that variation, more of those species. And that would translate into a raster inventory with a grid cell of about 25 by 25 meters squared. Right, right. And, and so I've got my smartphone and we always get to go out and use our GPS. Am I taking my smartphone out there to, to measure these plots or are you using some more fancy technology? <laughs> Absolutely not. The, and Murray spoke to this well in his, his episode. The most important part of doing your calibration plots is spatially locating those plots, right? So we use sub-meter GPS units. Right now, now we're using arrow units, um, and they provide to within about 0.1 of a meter um, our actual location on the ground. For a recreational GPS unit, you could be anywhere from 10 to 30 meters of your actual location. What we have to do is establish our plot center with these sub-meter GPS units, and we have to let them run for about an hour. And they're using, I believe it's it's three or four satellite networks. They use um, the Russian satellite network, GLONASS, I believe it's called. They use the Chinese satellite network, Baidu. Uh, they use the American networks and the European networks. So you're looking at about 40 to 100 satellites all at once triangulating your position. And you have to wait for those satellites to pass over top of you. So you have to sit there for, you know, close to 45 minutes to an hour in your plot to ensure that your plot center is within, you know, centimeters of its actual location. For sure, for sure. And, and so you had mentioned earlier, you know, Python, you know, that's a common thing um, that, Pretty much anyone dealing with data and data science, like unless you're a purist uh, software developer who would argue something more like a Java or C sharp or something. For the most part, like what's taught in university is, is uh, Python and you mentioned R, but maybe for our listeners who themselves are dabbling or who are experts doing this and have their own toolkit, um, maybe refresh us in terms of what the state of the art is for for tools and, and what you used. Uh, you had mentioned R and I assume there's probably a couple of libraries you use, but what's the standard Van Gwillem uh, data processing toolkit uh, recipe that, that you can share with the world? So R is the main environment that I'm in and it's the litter package that I primarily use to do the area-based inventories. So we're doing a, an area-based approach to our inventories. And the litter package is the full tool set for developing these inventories from. And that is based, it's a, a, an open source uh, library from uh, the University, uh, Laval University in Quebec. I believe uh, uh, Jean Romain is the, the primary individual responsible for that. And all of the tools in there can take you from your raw LIDAR point cloud straight through to your produced raster maps. And from there, I then pull it into ArcGIS Pro, where I do um, a lot of the, the geospatial work just so I can, you know, I have a good visual representation in front of me so I can see what's going on. Uh, the, R, the R environment is just purely, um, you know, it's all coding. You can't, you can, you can plot your, your, your graphs, but I much prefer bringing it into ArcGIS Pro to do uh, the final steps. For sure, and and for your for your rig or your 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 computer setup, maybe describe to us. Uh, you got a 
uh, overclock CPU, thermo cooled enclosure uh, that shines lights as if it's a streetcar, mm -hmm. uh, streetcar racer. Uh, what, what are you using for your day-to-day -day, uh, processing? Right. So uh, I think the most important aspects you should have on your machine, you should have multiple cores. So I'm using a Ryzen and it has, I believe, 24 cores on it, uh, 12 or, with 24 processors. And then I have a large amount of RAM. Anyone who wants to do LiDAR processing at home, you have to max out your RAM. I'm at about 128 gigabytes of RAM, and I find that's still not enough. Sometimes I have to cut a data set. Um, it's just the way that litter works. It'll pull everything into the space all at once, and it puts it on your memory all as one chunk. So you have to have at least the size of um, the rasters that are being produced. You have to have that much memory. If you're running a machine with, with your standard amount of memory of 32, 64 gigabytes, I guess that's what's being sold today. It, it simply isn't enough. If I could have more, I would put in more, but I think I'm, I'm using up all the slots I have on my motherboard. Yeah, I probably date myself by saying this, but I feel like the, this is like a Tim the Toolman Taylor uh, chuckle uh, where he does his. Uh, anyhow, that's probably dating me. Some people are like Tim the Toolman Taylor, but it was a sitcom, and and he would have his chuckle uh, uh, there. Um, so very cool. So now I'm 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 curious to you know as we we continue talking. Obviously, a technical expert, you've created many of these things. Uh, your boots on the ground, um, you know, scrambling around collecting uh, plots and doing those measurements. But maybe from the end user's perspective, because when we think about uh, whether it's Ontario Woodlot or commercial forestry clients and whatnot, um, some people either embrace the technology and the, and the information products that are produced right away, or some are maybe a, leer, a little bit leery and, and some are just like, this is how we've always done it. Why would we change? But for Ontario Woodlot Association members, like how how is the reception being um, to the 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 enhanced forest inventory products that you're producing uh, for them? I've been quite impressed with how positive the reception has been. These our members are are, are so enthusiastic about their own woodlots and improving the health of their woodlots or understanding more about their woodlots, and for us to be able to provide. Not so much, you know, the basal areas and the volumes and what they would use for commercial forestry, but we can also provide um, the above ground biomass, for instance, which can give them their carbon storage on their woodlot. We can provide, we're working on providing uh, wildlife metrics. So we're looking at different point densities, relating them to specific tree species, and how does that relate into now habitat? for certain bird species that would prefer a very dense canopy of a certain type of tree, or for instance, wintering yards for deer in hemlock stands that have a dense understory. And we're working to translate our LiDAR products into specifically the carbon and the wildlife, which I find is what our members are most interested in. Of course, we do have members who um, produce wood products from their woodlots, and they of course are very interested in in that other component, the basal areas, the volumes. But overall, you know, it's been it's been quite positive and there's been quite a bit of, you know, on our part, making this accessible for them and making it open source for them. So ensuring that they have access to open source tools that they can look at this data with. So, you know, we rely, while I use ArcGIS Pro myself, I translate all this into, um, you know, ways that they can use QGIS on their own machines to 
interpret this data. And eventually we're gonna have on our portal a way for a member to give us their address for their woodlot. And we can basically produce a la carte products for them if they're not able to do this analysis on their own. Um, that's further on down the road, of course. But um, overall, I think it's it's been quite positive, the, the reception, even though it's, it's you know, it's highly technical and uh, I see the eyes glaze over once in a while when I'm explaining it. But when they see the images and they see what they're able to understand now about their woodlot in that type of detail, um, they're all on board. Yeah, I find that amazing that you're able to take folks that, you know, passionate about their land who probably haven't used GIS tools before and and yet they're able to adopt QGIS and, and figure out how to uh, do that. But the flip side of the coin is, as digital forcers, I've discovered, uh, forcers are, are, are great problem solvers. It's built into their DNA and they know uh, their business better than anybody else. And with the right toolkit, they can they can figure it out, um, you know, to achieve the goals that they, they want. So that's very cool. What's the funniest field story that you can share with our audience? Your your boots on the ground. There's got to be bear chasing me for for uh, I did my half marathon training because a bear chased me, or I had to swim through things I didn't want to swim through. But is there a funny story that just sticks with your mind from from doing work for the OWA? It's probably spending a field day, and within the first fifteen minutes of getting out of the car, I fall down. I get covered in mud and water. And I have to spend the rest of the day just miserably soaked and, and dirty. To be honest, I, I'm quite grateful that there hasn't been a lot of unexpected things happening out in the field yet. But uh, uh, I hope I have some better stories for you soon. Because, you know, if if, if, if anything, we, we, we really do, um, we run into a lot of dynamic scenarios out there, right? The, the LIDAR is telling us to go sample a plot. And it doesn't care whether that plot is in a, a, an alder swamp or it's in a nice cushy pine plantation. We have to get out there and get to it. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 certainly a challenge, and it leads to some unique experiences. But uh, thankfully, nothing too 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 serious has happened to me yet. Yeah, very cool, very cool. So nowadays, all the rage is individual tree inventories. You had mentioned area based approach, pixel based. Um, enhanced inventories, but there's still a lot of um, excitement over individual tree inventories. But what's your view on it? Is it still hype being blown up or, or are we at that golden age where, where we can do uh, individual tree inventories accurately and precisely and, and consistently? What are your thoughts? Well, from my experience, um, I think in these large areas, it's quite a challenge being able to accurately reproduce the characteristics for each individual tree um, I don't think we're there yet. I know the ministry is, is working hard on, and that's the direction things will eventually go. We did recently wrap up a project for uh, the municipality of Oakville, and we did a essentially what was uh, a tree inventory using their LIDAR data. And we were able to do an individual tree inventory from that. And in that application, it worked very well. Because these trees were singular, um, they were um, spaced apart, the LIDAR was able to, you know, segment these trees very well. And we could use multispectral imagery to apply a, a species layer to it. And we were quite successful with an individual tree inventory in that urban setting. Outside of that, in these large um, land bases, and certainly in the south with all of the, the variation in Carolinian species, I really see an individual tree inventory being, being a huge challenge, but not 
uh, unsurmountable, certainly not with advances in, in computer technology. A big thing is, is the processing is just insane to, to process all of that into individual trees. And my computer at this point can't handle something like that even. So I think certainly with cloud applications, that'll be achievable. But right now, the, the area-based is, is really the gold standard for, for inventories. For sure, for sure. So thinking as, as a trained forester, um, despite the technical background and then getting in the weeds, using technology, obviously learning things, persevering, fighting through walls, and, and ultimately realizing success and then and doing continued projects for the, the OWA, um, looking forward, you know, are there certain technologies or themes or threads or something that you're keeping your eye on based on your area of expertise with LIDAR and, and inventories now? Is there something that you're just like, you know, gets you excited or you're just kind of on the side of the table, just like something's there. I'm just going to keep an eye. I, I'm, maybe I'm not sure how I'm going to use it in my day to day, but it, it's something that I, I'm, I'm really excited about and curious is there something there on the technology side that that you're excited about and you think other digital foresters should be as well certainly uh for me the terrestrial lidar is is something that is going to be such a powerful tool certainly for doing our calibration plots i've had my hands on a geoslan unit which is a handheld terrestrial lidar unit essentially it's um uh, the LiDAR sensor is right in front of you rather than being flown from an airplane. And you can walk with the unit through a stand or through a plot. And it's mapping that plot, um, collecting, you know, millions and millions and millions of points, providing such a dense point cloud that you're able to get diameters from the trees rather than predicting diameter from, you know, the forest structure from above. You're getting the actual diameter of the tree. And for us to be able to do a calibration plot using a terrestrial LIDAR unit, we could do it in 20 minutes, maybe less, rather than spending the hour, hour and a half that we are in the plot. We can just walk out there with the terrestrial LIDAR unit, scan it, move on to the next plot, and do all of our processing back at the office. That and I believe just the the, the open source data that's coming online with, with the, the satellite sensors that are, are being launched, the, for instance, the, the Jetty satellite sensor, the, the space-borne LiDAR, um, it's, I find that amazing. And I find it amazing that, that we're able to access that for free. For the, the Sentinel-2 imagery, um, we can do such excellent time series analysis. We can take images from the spring, from the fall, from the, the winter, and um, you know we can do such good species mapping. And it's all free. It's all open source and, and available to the public. Very cool. So if I was to take my uh, my uh, my marker and on the screen colored a little bit of a gray into your beard, into your hair, and then now I, I say you're a professor Ben Gwillem now. <laughs> yeah, there's some there already. But but now yeah. Professor Ben Gwillem, you're you're in charge of the University of Toronto program, forestry program. What 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 course what what would the course be called? And, and what would you teach in it, um, knowing that these are skills that, that any forester should have? So what would the course be called and, and what would the curriculum look like to, to ensure that, that, that foresters were coming out with what, what they needed to uh, succeed in the world? Certainly, I think it would just, it would be a core course on LIDAR data. I think this is 
becoming, and it already has become such a fundamental aspect of how we are conducting forest management. And I really think there isn't enough of an emphasis. Certainly the MFC program has about a half credit for our GIS. So our, our, our geographic information um, systems course was, was only, you know, three or four months long wasn't enough for the amount of GIS that is actually used in forest management, being able to interpret maps, being able to do analysis on these maps. So I think there, there would be a very much a strong focus on using LIDAR data and, um, you know, interpreting that in GIS systems, which I, I don't think there's, there's quite enough of right now, at least not from my experience. For sure, for sure. And, and so when we think about the Ontario Woodlot Association, your work, you know, you're doing this stuff, What's the future look like? What uh, um, John Pino gives you the the keys to the association? I know not, that's not how it works, but but now you are the new John Pino. What what what? Where would you like to see the OWA um, invest its efforts in terms of the work you're doing, or is there something else that uh, you've seen working with the the OWA that you know when we think about connecting dots? Is there a logical connector to some other initiatives that would really benefit um, the Ontario Woodlot Association uh, membership? I think moving towards um, leveraging these these open source data sets to provide a la carte mapping for our members for their specific woodlot areas, moving towards working closely with municipalities and producing individual tree inventories with their LIDAR data, and then reusing the the new acquisitions because it's becoming more and more frequent that the lidar data is being captured. You're looking at you know every five years, um, in some cases you know more like ten years. Then we can develop growth models for these areas, these smaller areas, these these towns, these cities, these woodlots, and being able to provide this data online because we are a nonprofit um, and we are this project is publicly funded. This this data will be publicly available and having a portal where people can just circle their area on a map, a Google maps type platform. And it spits out all of the inventory attributes for them. And if there's multiple acquisitions, then we can do even deeper analysis to see how is their forest changing, um, you know, in terms of health, uh, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I think moving towards that, working working closely with with landowners and, and municipalities, and helping them leverage these the, this data that's sitting there, open source, and, and providing them with that is, is certainly the way that that things should go. For sure. So I always love ask, asking this question, and I know a lot of people chuckle when I ask it, but um, and it's only applicable maybe not to everyone, but for some people. But if Ben Gwillem was to look back on young a younger version of Ben Gwillem again you know, signed up for computer science and then dropped out because it wasn't the right calling or the right fit down forestry uh, by default, maybe because of the atrium with the natural trees in them that provided the inspiration. But if you're look to look back, uh, was there a point in time um, that, you know, if you're to go back and give yourself a, a piece of advice to, to, to maybe adjust your path in a certain direction or maybe move you further or quicker down, the path you took is there one piece of advice that you would give yourself or other young young foresters studying now and and looking and aspiring to, to join the workforce is there something a pro tip you would give them 
I think I would ask more questions. I would I would develop stronger connections with uh, my mentors. I would ask more questions of the experts in the field and really um, leverage these connections for, um, you know, my uh, my own interests, really. So it would be like just to stay curious and stay up to date with with all these developing developments. It's it's happening at such a rapid pace that you have to be checking, you know, every few weeks, every few months to see what new papers are coming out and who has done what and how could you use that um, for your own applications. So just to stay curious, ask questions. Do not be afraid um, to to really pester uh some of these professors and mentors that's they 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 love talking about and and sharing their knowledge right so um some of them don't do it willingly right so i would definitely say be be more proactive in that sense yeah that's a that's a great pro tip and it makes me laugh because there's a saying until someone actually says no then you should keep keep asking the questions or or keep pestering as as you say so as we look to wind down, Ben, I've enjoyed the conversation. I've enjoyed learning what what you do. Uh, like you and I had not met before, and um, so super cool to to learn your journey and then and the work that you did for for the OWA. But I'm assuming that a lot of this work you've done is transferable to other jurisdictions, uh, whether it's land in general or maybe even you know other places like in the U.S. where private land is more the norm versus in Canada a lot of crown land or or really any other international jurisdiction. Um, so if folks want to get a hold of you to say, hey, I want to pick pick your brain, uh, learn more, or, or maybe use you as a sounding board, or maybe even create some other partnerships or, 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 or who knows what that is. What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Certainly. So I'd encourage anyone to visit the ontariowoodlot.com website to check out our organization. And from there, you can find my contact information. It's b.gwillem at ontariowoodlot.com. That's b.gwilliam. And I, I, I really enjoy sharing the things that I've learned because it wasn't so long ago that I was first starting out and overwhelmed. And I still am quite a newbie. But I think that gives me a, a sort of unique perspective that I can translate a lot of what I learned without getting too much in the weeds for people. And it helps people who are also new to, to understand how they can take their raw point cloud, which likely exists if they're in Ontario, it's all been flown and turn it into something usable. That's, um, you know, similar to what we're doing here at the Ontario with a lot. Yeah. It's funny. You say it's easy. Uh, uh, what's easy to one is likely hard for the other, you know, for us, it's easy because um, you know, you've spent 10,000 hours uh, making it easy. And, and so that's where often, as you said, networking, speaking with the peers, the community, you know, it's a, it's foresters like to share and, and share openly and help, help where possible. So Ben, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Really love learning your journey, love learning the work that you're actually doing and, and you're thinking on, on where to go, go next. I think a lot of our listeners and viewers will be able to, to relate to your journey in terms of trying to start and where to go. We talked about various tools that you're using now that largely for the most part, you know, aside from maybe the ArcGIS aside for the visualization, these are open source tools that anyone could pick up. But just back to our comment, what is easy to you was probably not easy on day one. And 
sounds like you're open to, to talking with people and sharing your experiences. So people who are listening, watching, you know, feel free to reach out to, to Ben at the Ontario Woodlot Association. So, hey, man, really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you had some fun in this uh, conversation with this guy. And uh, we'll look forward to maybe connecting in person in the not so far uh, future. But thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much, Kevin. It was really an honor to be here today.